Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week we'll focus on British troops and discuss how British army tactics changed. There were 65,000 English casualties during the Boer War and its effects tore across the Southern African felt between 1899 and 1902. 22,000 English soldiers died. To put this in perspective, 16,000 died in the Crimean War, fought ostensibly with muskets and cannon, not smokeless magazine-fed highly accurate rifles like the Mauser and Lee Metford, nor the automatic cannon called the pom-pom or the Maxim machine gun, such as we've seen during this war. When conflict began, English officers basically followed a system that they believed had been perfected over hundreds of years. What the military brain's trust hadn't taken into account was the effect of new technology. As I've explained since the start of this series, these men were caught between two continents, two areas, and two worlds. Many grew up as the Industrial Revolution burst across England and Europe, but were also affected by the Romantic era of battles that resonated for the 18th and 19th century, the Napoleon Wars, Admiral Nelson, the charge of the Light Brigade, the suppression of the Indian subcontinent with its mysterious riches, the subjugation of the Sudan and Egypt. Some of the fighting men had met veterans of the war in the Spanish Peninsula and had read or heard about the tales of heroism. But they were facing a 20th century industrial war where artillery had advanced and trenches were to become the preferred defensive method in order to escape the industrialized killing machines. The officers and men were steeped in tradition backed up by the narrative of an empire in full flow, secure in its own history and positive about its future. Boxes of infantry, Swords gleaming, marching in serried rows towards each other to fight a glorious battle backed up by cavalry usually swinging around in some kind of flanking maneuver at speed. The Boer War was different. It was fought at a distance at least between October 1899 through to December 1900. Then it morphed into a classic guerrilla campaign and the British troops came face to face with their enemy in an entirely different way. By June 1901, where we've arrived in our three-year story, these faces were often the women and children and black workers of Boers who remained in the field. The real meaning of 20th century war had hit home right here in South Africa. Civilians were beginning to be caught in the midst of these battles. In their mind's eye, the English soldier was marching to a glorious confrontation with an enemy motivated by the same ethos. But in South Africa, the English soldier faced a foe who was etched and moulded in Africa. The fact that the Boers were pale of complexion was secondary to their African method of warfare. They didn't care much for the idea that there was a national honour in their name, or their names would appear in some kind of roll call, or a stone in the middle of the village, deceased, fighting for their honour. There weren't enough soldiers to fight, so the preferred method was to survive for another day. All main academics agree about this. So the English soldiers' war diaries are at times naive, yet full of courage. Tommy Atkins' story has been usurped by the later coverage of concentration camps where thousands of Boer women and children died, and the muddle-headed political campaigns at home as well as infighting where veterans were political footballs. Compounded with the dreadful Great War of 1914-18, and more than a quarter of a million men who fought in South Africa were largely forgotten, and many died on the Western Front a short 12 years after they left Africa. So this week, we're going to peek into the lives of some of these British soldiers. It's winter, early June 1901. The war is stuttering. 240,000 British troops are now garrisoned and marching across South Africa, mostly in drives across the Transvaal and Free State. 
trying to mop up motley groups of Boers, the diehards or bitter enders, bitter enders as they're known. Ordinary British soldiers in South Africa found life tedious, dreary and boring. Many wrote copiously about their experiences and as I've explained this war was the first where rank and file men were educated through the development of the Victorian schooling system so we have diaries, notes and letters from all classes. The stories are often clouded by bitterness and cynicism as the war dragged on, and for many there was a sense of injustice that grew month after month. This was worsened by the less than generous sentiment expressed by the white settler community already in South Africa. In the Cape, soldiers garrisoned near towns were a source of friction, and so they remain when the troops are from outside the local culture to this day. By June 1901, many Tommies began to display disorderly behaviour. As white colonials shied away from fraternising with blacks, Tommy Atkins created a huge hidden economy that ranged across the felt, following the columns of thousands of men, and they did fraternise with black South Africans directly. Some of the fraternising involved alcohol and prostitution, while mostly it was purely economic. There was some attempt by the British to supply the men with limited quantities of rum, and they turned a blind eye to the groups of women who trailed the camps at times. But by June 1901, the British thought they should limit the supply of rum available to the men, which in hindsight was poorly thought out. The felt turns brown in winter. The vast expanse is alienating. It's like being marooned on a flat, featureless sea. The Germans felt this when they invaded Russia with the undulating steppes that appeared to go on for hundreds and then thousands of kilometres, and the local population looked different and spoke strange languages. In South Africa, Tommy Atkins could be based in a small depot close to a railway line for months at a time, staring out at the empty felt during the day. During the night, they would fear the unusual noises, half expecting a sudden attack by the roaring bands of Boers. They lapsed into mental tedium, doing nothing except playing cards, gambling and sleeping, so removing their evening rum tots led to some unexpected social shifts in South Africa. Black women and local communities were largely responsible for brewing alcohol, as it remains to this day in rural South Africa. The Tommies became experts at tapping these local suppliers, and the local suppliers became experts at increasing production to cope with the demand. This meant a close relationship developed between black communities and British troops, particularly the women. The troops also became expert in passing on intelligence to each other about the transport of the official grog between towns, as well as excellent places for liaisons inside places of ill repute. In Vipana, for example, in April 1901, it was reported that 36 cases of whiskey were taken off a truck, and over 40 men found drunk, and one actually died of alcohol poisoning. Lord Kitchener's fighting scouts were blamed for the theft, which embarrassed the commander-in-chief of the British Army in South Africa. Lord Kitchener's scouts were local English-speaking men, not official English Army members from Britain, but the official British Army was suffering from the same malaise. At about the same time in Rustenburg, west of Pretoria, an officer reported he was unable to bring picket lines up to full strength because among his already tipsy men, the proportion of the hopelessly drunk and incapable has risen to 50%. Half his unit would wake up the next day with a hangover. So the causal relationship between alcohol consumption and insubordination posed an additional problem. 
and officers were often forced to take severe action. Punishment of drunken soldiers who clashed with officers took on an 18th century naval edge. They were often lashed. Two privates, for example, who were found guilty of insubordination after drinking what was called a native brew, were given 112 days hard labor. And in the town of Boxburg, east of Johannesburg, two men found guilty of a similar crime were spread-eagled and tied to a wagon's wheels. The wagon was then set in motion, and the men were actually whipped while spinning around and around as the wheels turned. The enemy would never be treated so harshly which is a statement about how the 18th century and 20th century military discipline intersected in the Boer War. At this stage of the war, the Tommies were increasingly deployed in remote mobile formations, which meant it was difficult to impose proper discipline. Therefore, looting coupled with drunkenness and prostitution accelerated. I'm reminded of stories about Vietnam, with the isolated units of American troops turning to LSD, marijuana, and other drugs to forget about where they were, alienated in a foreign land, and attacked suddenly, out of the blue, after weeks of quiet. Tommy Atkins was dubbed the looting soldier by British observers of the Anglo-Boer War. Their acquisitive propensities were given free reign in a war that saw lengthy periods of relative inactivity. Anything to release them from boredom was welcome, particularly drink and women. Groups of Tommies regularly looted Boer farms and sometimes black villages nearby. While looting was not official policy, officers turned a blind eye for the most part, according to published records. One of the reasons Cape English settlers feared the arrival of British troops was that they tended to help themselves to farm produce and property. In mid-1901, a unit of 70 men of the Lincolnshire Regiment, whose traditional marching song was, appropriately, the Lincolnshire Poacher, joined forces with local black villagers near Kimberley in a systematic plunder of farmhouses, whether Boer or not. At the end of this ransacking, both British and black sat down to enjoy an extended drinking session. When Tommy looted, it was usually to survive, and much involved livestock. Captured cattle and sheep were on the menu, Milk cows were much coveted. British troops seemed to have been relatively unconcerned with curios and trophies, as there weren't many to covet out on the desiccated prairies. A roaring trade emerged in gold, however, where black villagers would not accept cash payments for goods and services, preferring gold instead. By the way, the same thing happened in Afghanistan and western Pakistan, and gold remains crucial in the exchange of goods under the Taliban, the Islamic State, and other extremist movements. But it was where Tommy Atkins intersected with other races that contradictions abound. Soldiers were influenced by the settler attitudes towards black, Asian and mixed-race people, but not always. The lowly soldier felt he had some control over another person, and often this relationship of bullying would descend into brutality. Perhaps a simple explanation about how some black and coloured mule and wagon drivers felt will illuminate this complex relationship. Black mule drivers resorted to indirect verbal retaliation for what they saw was insulting abuse by yelling Englishman at the animals when whipping them. Some English troops did absorb the colonist attitudes towards what they regarded as native work. By December 1900, for example, a fatigue party from the Manchester Regiment wrote a formal letter to their platoon commander in protest in having been made to undertake heavy manual work of a kind they said they considered to be more suited to blacks. Yet, 
Far more examples of Tommy Atkins being at one with local blacks exist. After all, they had experienced their own officer corps treating them as second-class citizens. Many of these upper-class British officer corps believed in eugenics, that they were genetically superior to their own men. The men were less likely to indulge in a genetic explanation for the inferior position of local blacks. This is where the tale of Tommy Atkins becomes more interesting on a generalised basis. For as the war progressed, the boundaries broke down between these soldiers and local people, and much of this was around alcohol and sex. Tommies were far more inclined than the officer corps elite to view blacks as fellow human beings, perhaps hostile and devious in their eyes, but recognisable in their world. After all, most troops were from the lower classes, cast out by the English upper class, surviving in a world of rich and poor, and forever being reminded where they belonged on the lower rung of the empire's ladder. This was noted in many diaries and described in the work The South African War, edited by Peter Warwick. More than one soldier saw analogies between black labourers and Irish navvies and between malnourished black children and Glaswegian urchins. Right from the outset, Tommies readily took to the arms of compliant black women. One correspondent from Port Elizabeth noted in June 1900 the enthusiasm of what he called appreciative Tommies at the sight of philanthropic damsels among a group of Africans at the harbour entrance as the troop ship hove into view. Prostitutes operating in the vicinity of camps were invariably black and supplied merchandise as well as sexual favours to nearby troops. However, many soldiers discovered to their chagrin that these women drove a hard bargain. After one liaison with a woman, one troop quoted by Warwick had a great deal of difficulty extracting his change, and eventually she opened her mouth, having hidden loose change under her tongue. He was horrified, but that didn't stop him consorting in the future. African women were a welcome diversion from the drudgery, although in the present narrative there's a strong belief among certain South African politicians that these women were coerced or raped by the soldiers, tricked into being sex workers. This is simplifying matters, and mostly wrong. Abuses took place, but converting all into a simpleton argument based on an attempt to revise the past to fit modern politics is an insult to the human spirit. As with sex workers in the 21st century, there was a roaring trade at the time and no amount of revisionist bunkum will change that reality. Women had a stark choice. Starve to death on the felt or sell their bodies and survive. Others ran their own brothels and businesses and retired happy. I'm not suggesting this was acceptable. Merely reminding all that in times of war and hunger, each man and woman makes their own rules about how they're going to stagger to the other side of the raging inferno that is war. Black-coloured and white women who decided to sell their bodies did so knowingly and survived a terrifying moment in South Africa's conflict-ridden history. So the story of the New Zealand division based in the Free State in 1901 serves as an example. They were involved in hunting down the elusive Boer leader, General Christian de Wet, and now and again were given time off for a bit of R&R to let off steam. Trooper F. Perham, part of the Kimberley Flying Column, who hailed from Timaru in New Zealand, describes being near a town which he does not name. Timaru is on the southeast coast in the Canterbury region of New Zealand. Houses of ill fame are numerous. These places were licensed by the authorities and subject to inspection, so were not considered to be places of ill fame, he writes dryly, and please forgive my slightly cracked Kiwi accent. 
A number of boys I know did pay visits to these places, and some of them to their later regret. He claims to being dragged to one of these venues in his anonymous hamlet after some slagging off and accused of being a Puritan. At last he gave in, All right, I'll come along. They took me to a place clean, well kept by all appearances. From the street we entered a dark cloakroom, and from there entered a large reception room with quite a number of chairs and couches. Also, quite a number of girls, white, yellow and black. Leading from the reception area were a number of doors. Presumably into small rooms designed for two, he says demurely. Anyway, to finish the tale, continues Trooper Perham, I sat on a chair and immediately a buxom black lass perched herself on my knees, put her arms around my neck and commenced whispering in my ears in broken English. Trooper Perham claims to have made a hasty retreat. Yet the English soldiers were remarkably constrained, considering their daily grind. The yeomanry and mounted infantry played a major part in the maintenance of security just by being in place. Take Trooper William Grant, who served with the Ayrshire and Lanarkshire Company of the 6th Battalion of the Imperial Yeomanry, cooperating with the 7th Mounted Infantry Regiment formed from Manchester. They were based in Bethlehem in the north-east Free State, close to the Basutoland border. By now, the fighting between Boer and British was far more evenly contested than in the first year of the war, as his diary entries between April and June 1901 show. Trooper Grant's unit was busy rounding up Boer women and children under orders from Lord Kitchener and approached a farm where they believed support had been provided to a local Boer commander. After taking the families from three of the four farms they had earmarked for special attention on that day, they were attacked while approaching the fourth. The mounted infantry, who were the advance screen, fell into an ambush and before they could extricate themselves had lost two killed and one wounded. The Boer attackers then followed up the initial success and began to ride towards the nearby high ground, a small hill. Suddenly, 50 or so of them broke cover and galloped for the aforesaid hill. Our section of 35 men received orders to mount and also make a rush for the same hill. Their 50 men were backed up by lively rifle fire, while our 12-pounder supported us. In less time it takes to retell this, we had reached the ridge, and the Boers, seeing the game was up, attempted to take a ridge to the left. But the mounted infantry, which had been ambushed, had already reached that ridge and shot down some of the Boers as they galloped across the open plain. Trooper Grant and his unit also opened fire, and the Boers turned and retreated. As the Manchester mounted infantry and yeoman units advanced, they realised the 50 Boer burghers had joined up with a much larger force in a strong defensive position behind the farmhouse, which itself was on higher ground a mile distant. It was a cattle farm and the animals had eaten the grass right down to the ground. During the summer, rains form huge holes, or what are known as dongas, where sudden erosion in South Africa leaves the landscape riven. The commander was using these dongas as natural trenches, along with scrub and boulders in other parts. The order came to halt, and Trooper Grant was pleased. They had a mile of open ground to cover in order to reach the farmhouse. Any attempt at pushing forward would have been suicide. British officers understood that it would have been futile and morale-gutting to gallop directly at men entrenched and waiting to shoot you down. I've read all sorts of descriptions by experienced military tacticians who still try and explain away the orders that were issued by generals like Rawlinson and Gough and Haig in Flanders and France. And every one of these generals were involved in the Anglo-Boer War. Surely they had learnt their lesson? Apparently not. 
Back at the farmhouse, the English unit hadn't given up. The mounted infantry of about 150 men moved off to Grant's right. In this little skirmish, you'll see how the English tactics had shifted, how the officers and NCOs were making decisions on the fly, showing innovation and initiative compared with the first months of the war, where they thought they were at Aldershot and waited to be told what to do next. On seeing the forward movement of the mounted infantry, Captain Boswell, our sectional leader, ordered us to gallop on the left front and take cover at an orchard there. They hastily mounted and formed up in an extended order. Not a bunched group of men had been their tactics earlier in the war. They got within 500 yards of the farmhouse when the Boers spotted their advance. A terrific fire was directed against us from the copy and kraals, which seemed to be full of Boers. The bullets were splattering all around us, whizzing past and over us, and it does not say much for the Boers' marksmanship when they only managed to give one of our men a bit of lead in his thigh. The section was forced to halt eventually, as they were confronted by a giant donga, the ground having been eroded to leave a 25-foot hole with a sheer drop. After another half an hour of firefighting, including artillery being fired at the Boers, the commando withdrew, leaving the farmhouse to the English. The Boers took their dead and wounded with them, while on the English side, two were killed, nine wounded. A number of horses were also dead. The English force seized the family who were sheltering inside the farmhouse, took all the oranges off the trees in the orchard, as well as their hens and eggs, and withdrew. In a surprise twist, they didn't set fire to the buildings. Nothing of value was to be seen, so we left the farmhouse as it was, writes Trooper Grant. Had the skirmish taken place six months before, it is likely the mounted infantry would have been ordered to take the farmhouse at all costs. A lot of changes in war when the officers in command have experience on their side. Certainly, the firefight was neither victory nor defeat for both sides. It was kind of a neutral engagement, but one more farm was cleared of its women and children, and one more concentration camp had more inmates. The other thing that had changed was the officers and men were dressed identically to try and avoid sniper fire from the Boers who had targeted officers for special attention. They were equipped with a rifle, but unlike the men, they did not have to carry most of their possessions as they marched or rode through the felt. The full kit consisted of a rifle with a full magazine, haversack with one day's complete rations and one day's issue of tea, sugar and biscuit, canteen as well as water bottle, sidearms and equipment with 10 spare rounds of ammunition, a blanket strapped on the waist belt on the back. In this cold winter of 1901, they would use the blanket during the day at times, wrapped about them in the tradition of the nearby Basutu people who lived in the Drakensberg Mountains, which was close to where Trooper Grant was standing guard that night after the farmhouse skirmish. Unfortunately, he failed to complete his shift. In the early hours of the morning, he was struck down by dysentery and rushed off to the medical tent. So we'll leave him to his woes and end our podcast for this week. Thanks to my new listeners, particularly the presenter Martin D. of History by Hollywood, who's invited me to be part of his podcast show to talk about the Breaker Morant saga, which was featured in episode 72. We'll chat about that in August. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes, and you can direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham, or send me an email through our website, abwarpodcast.com. Until next week. Goodbye. <laughs>